have been hit hard by a severe drought this year. If we are going to grow a lot more food, where will the water come from? Intensification of agriculture is one response to the food crisis. The regulatory environment is kind of the key. We need to increase productivity sustainably. How do we move into the future? Welcome to a new episode of the Food Systems Podcast. My name is Franziska Gaub and I'm a researcher at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Austria. I'm very happy about this episode as it focuses on the perspective of young scientists and their important role in the transition to a more sustainable future. I speak with Gabriela Guimarães Nombri, a PhD student in the Netherlands, born in Brazil, who works on crop failure, early warning systems and insurance. She's a member of the UN Major Group for Children and Youth and the Water Youth Network. Gabi speaks about her motivation and the paths that have led her to Europe, about why youth engagement is so important and about her role in the Young Scientists Platform for Disaster Risk Reduction. Hi Gabi and welcome to my Food Systems Podcast. Hello, <laughs> thanks for having me. You're a PhD student at the Free University in Amsterdam at the Institute of Environmental Studies. And in your work, you look at agricultural drought risks and early warning systems. Your background, however, is not in the environmental sciences at all. No, that's true. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a quite interesting t transition that uh, I had it. <laughs> you started in finance, right? True. Yeah, so I have a background on business and with specialization in finance. Yeah, indeed, and, and uh, suddenly, not suddenly, well, but I guess was more of my own motivation that I decided to, to move it to the environmental systems and uh, yeah. You did your undergrad in the Bachelor in Business Management and Finance in Recife in Brazil? Yes. And then something must have happened. You said it already. There was a, like a change of interest because you didn't only change your field of interest towards the environmental sciences, but also moved to a completely different continent from Brazil to Germany, where you did a master's in environmental management at the University of Kiel in Germany. What motivated you to do that? What happened? Yeah. So um, I think the main reason why I decided to move to environmental management studies was mostly because um, I was at the time doing my bachelor's in business and uh, at the same time that I was studying I was already working as well so I could work for the private sector for a few years and I was mostly working with finance and uh, I think that at the time I felt somehow selfish on myself because uh, I thought that I could be using my talents for something that would be more relevant for, so for society in general. But was there a specific event or anything that made you really change your mind or made you think what you want to do with your future? Um, I would say there's not a specific event, but uh, mostly of my personal motivation on uh, when I when I could see in Brazil. Well, Brazil is it's a it's a country of many inequalities, and uh, I have the privilege of working with uh, with families, mostly fam family business, and uh, all these families they were very lucky to be wealthy enough, and uh, they were one of the most rich families in Brazil, and uh, I thought that uh, just my daily hours in life I was mostly dedicating at the end of the day to support these people to become more and more wealthy 
And um, yeah, I didn't feel that uh, I was playing an important role at the end of the day. So I thought that uh, putting more efforts and understanding what is outside and uh, what is uh, surrounding me, that's it's also affecting me, but affecting much more other people, that um, I could serve more and uh, more significantly to society by, yeah, putting putting my talents in somewhere that uh, I, I thought was more more relevant. And how did you choose exactly Germany to do your master's in? Yeah, so the reason, maybe before uh, we go to Germany, mm -hmm. so I was at the time living in, in Ireland, in Dublin, so I lived there for two and a half years. And this was basically a break from my studies uh, back in Brazil. And... Um, What were you doing in Ireland? Oh, I was doing so many things, <laughs> everything that you can imagine. Well, but mostly I went to Ireland because I really wanted to, to do a language course. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I was doing several types of side jobs just to, to pay bills and uh, to stay myself. Well, but I still imagine it's quite an adventure if you come from Brazil and then you just decide without any concrete plan what to do in Europe. You just move to Ireland and to, to, to learn English. True, yeah, this was, it, it was really a dream coming true because I, I always had this dream of one day living somewhere and uh, learning a new language. So this was really accomplishing a dream. And uh, yeah, so at the same time that I, I was there and I was experiencing a different culture, different routine and uh, getting to know so many different people, I also felt that uh, I would like to, to continue abroad and uh, more than these I would like to to have the opportunity to start abroad and I think that's when my biggest focus fo changed focus on not only on learning the language but also trying to to improve my studies in uh, in in a more international context so that's how I first when I was in Ireland I just really decided to myself that uh, I wanted to continue there and to come back To, to do my master's abroad. So that's that's how first came the intention of studying abroad. And then that's how everything started. So basically, I think uh, all people who is coming from a country that's outside Europe, they know how difficult it is to do a master's or postgraduate program abroad, and especially in Europe. What are the difficulties? Um, I think the biggest difficulty is the is the money because it's extremely expensive to to study abroad as a as an immigrant as a as someone coming from outside. And uh, well, I had in mind that I really wanted to do it in Europe, and then I started to investigate what what were the possibilities to do that. And well. Germany was a country that it's a country that really embraced the students who are coming from outside and over there I have the same uh, rights and privilege from a, of a German person so um, I could study in Germany without paying um, super expensive fees as a We, we often observe in, uh, in the UK or even in Ireland where I was living at the time. So yeah, I could uh, live in Germany and pursue a very, very high um, relevant and uh, of a study of very high quality in Germany. So yeah, I, I think that it was uh, two ways. One that uh, I really liked the program that they were offering at the university that I decided to go for. It was a master in English because mostly of the master programs in Germany 
it's in German, <laughs> obviously. And um, yeah, so the the reason why to go to Germany was a uh, multiples, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's for me now. It just it just seems like it was a perfect match. Sounds great. Do you speak some German now? Ein bisschen. <laughs> in Kiel, you worked also as a research assistant in the Coastal Risk and Sea Level Rise Research Group. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly you were doing there? Sure. Yeah. So when I came to Kiel and uh, I decided to do this master environmental management, we basically had to choose two pathways. Uh, and the pathways that I chose for myself was a pathway in uh, coastal risks and another one in environmental management, which was a more broad pathway. And um, for coastal risk management, what I was uh, mostly investigating during my time as an assistant researcher, it was on the impacts of uh, sea level rise in the Mediterranean, especially in Croatia, in the city of Split. Okay. Um, Recife in Brazil also lies at the coast. Do they take any measurements to prepare for sea level rise? And are you from Recife directly or did you just go to university there? No, I'm from I'm from Recife directly. But I have to say, it's a funny thing, but uh, um, Recife and the city that I live now, that is Amsterdam, they have very many things in common, including the low elevation areas at the coastal zone. And uh, why are in the Netherlands uh, they much more prepared for, for sea level rise and uh, just floods in general? Um, I think that Hesifi, in Hesifi we still face a lot of struggles with, um, with uh, floods, but um, I think the most, the most frequent threat which uh, all the citizens and people who live in the metropolitan regions they face, it's mostly floods coming from, uh, from surface uh, runoff and uh, from just from very intense uh, precipitation and uh, which tends to just be trapped in the city and uh, because the channels are often uh, clogged due to garbage and uh, other things. So I think we have much more floods coming from uh, from surface runoff than from coastal floods. But uh, yeah, it's uh, th there are many things in common. And uh, I think Hesifi, as many other cities uh, in the world, is a city that has developed a lot around the coast. And uh, we have loads of uh, important activities and important uh, commerce and, uh, and uh, industry around the coast, which are, in a sense, susceptible to not just to sea level rise, but even to storm surge. You then started a PhD at the Free University in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, where you focus on climate variability and early warning predictors of agricultural drought and food security risks. Can you tell us a bit about how agricultural drought can be forecasted? I think one special thing with, um, with agriculture and droughts in general in comparison to floods is that um, floods, uh, well, flood is a very rapt onset event, which sometimes it's very difficult to forecast. And the, the flood, it's a very slow onset event, which show its, its signals and its impacts slowly by slowly. So um, I think one, well, th there are many ways that you can uh, forecast agricultural droughts or just droughts in general, but the approach that I use for my PhD, I try to look at large-scale um, atmospheric oscillations or sea surface temperatures 
and uh, try to understand how these large anomalies, these large anomalies on the climate, can be triggering bad weather conditions, which are more favorable for, for droughts. Um, so I mostly take an empirical type of analysis for forecasting droughts rather than using a forecast system itself. So the way that I've been approaching to my PhD, because I mostly look at uh, agricultural impacts, I'm um, mostly looking at uh, different lead times during the growing season of a specific crop. And then I try to understand how much the variability in the climate and in the weather at this specific lead time can be interactive with the crop. And depending on which stage the crop is and uh, which ways these anomalies on the climate and on the weather can be triggering some kind of negative effects on the crop development and they consequently lower, uh, not lower, longer in the season, some kind of crop failure. You focus on disaster risk financing mechanisms, especially on ex-ante cash transfer. What is meant by an ex-ante cash transfer? Yeah, so ex-ante, we use this term to classify all types of activities that uh, one uh, funder or one um, humanitarian actor is doing prior to a shock. So prior, for example, to a flood that's forecasted or for, uh, prior to a drought in, in this case. So uh, exempt cash transfer would be then the cash transfer or the payouts that you do to a certain beneficiary prior to a shock. Um, you study currently maize yields in Kenya. This is your case study. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that project specifically? Sure. So uh, this project came from the from the fact that we observed that the drought early warning system it's rarely used for triggering early actions such as uh, cash transfer for example that we investigated and uh, one of the reasons why it's that um, there is very little evidence on the effectiveness and uh, on the costs related to excellent uh, early actions yeah, because usually farmers get they get reimbursed after a big drought has happened right so you try to make to give them payouts already before the actual drought and crop losses happen yes yeah you are right so uh, traditionally this is the is the focus that uh, humanitarian agencies has been has been doing that is to provide the aid after shock and uh, what we're really trying with this project and uh, this paper that we recently published is really to build up like a consistent body of evidence on the cost effectiveness of excellent types of um, cash transfer or any other type of aid. You're not only a scientist, you also volunteer at the Water Youth Network and the UN Major Group for Children and Youth, where you support youth engagement and capacity building on water and disaster risk reduction. What projects have you worked in there? I started to volunteer for the Water Youth Network and for the UN Major Group for Children and Youth since 2016. So I decided to do these, uh, let's say, these side, these side activities uh, next to my PhD because uh, I thought it was a great moment to be doing something in parallel. And uh, these two organizations, well, we're mostly working with uh, youth engagement and uh, young professionals and uh, They, they have a, a bit of a different approach, while the Water Youth Network, we mostly focus in uh, water young professionals. Uh, at the UN Major Group, we have uh, a diverse 
body of uh, young and children that are, that are volunteering towards all the sustainable development goals and the sustainable development agenda. So at the, the major group, I mostly work with uh, disaster risk reduction related activities and we've been involved in uh, in many activities the one that I've been mostly involved in uh, it's the young scientists platform where we try to bring together all types of research that it has been doing by young scientists on diverse fields but which somehow related to disaster risk reduction now this sounds really really cool and why do you think it's important to work especially with young people Yeah, I think um, young people, they, you know, they have the energy, the power and the eagerness for change. And uh, they often, uh, they often aware of uh, the, all the most prominent changes and methodologies and the movements that are upcoming uh, nowadays in society. So I think that it's very important not only for to work, f uh, not only that youth organizations, you know, work with young organizations, but that uh, organizations outside, they also work together with youth uh, and uh, the young scientists and the young community in general. And do you have the feeling that what those young people say is being heard? Yes, I, I think I'm quite positive with that. There is a clear change towards the ears You're also one of 32 global experts on disaster risk reduction selected by the UNISDR, the UN Organization for Disaster Risk Reduction, to develop a global risk assessment framework, GRAF. Can you say a little bit about GRAF? What, what is that? Yeah, the GRAF, it's, uh, it's a movement that has been... Um, that has been called by the UNISDR to really to really try to connect users and providers of risk information in order to achieve and to push society to achieve the goals that was established in the Sendai framework, which is the flagship uh, report by the UNISDR. So it's, uh, it's uh, this, uh, the graph really aims to, to push societies and to really promote and uh, to speed up the implementation of the Sendai framework. And uh, one of the, the ways that they're doing that is really by trying to understand what uh, the users need and uh, what is already available out there, and then trying to connect these, um, these gaps and uh, trying to, uh, to explore what is already available and uh, what uh, might exist and you might not know that exists. And GRAF is a 15-year-long project. It's supposed to go until 2030. If you think about the year 2030, what should happen that you feel extremely happy with the outcomes of GRAF in 2030? So um, I think the interesting thing with the GRAF is that it's not only trying to achieve the the goals which is uh, highlighted in the Sendai framework, but is also trying to at the same time uh, at the same time build synergies between the Paris Agreement and the, S the Sendai and also the Sustainable Development Goals. So I think if by 2030 we manage to really promote this shift of um, managing uh, risk rather than manage disasters, and that we really see that. Uh, You know, developing countries, they're making, they, they are better off in society. They, they really 
having a resilient society and um, they're able to to cope with the threats of hazards and uh, building up a resilient society, I think this it, it's already a very valuable outcome. And uh, if as a graph member, if I can see this shift and uh, these goals being achieved, I think it's, it's already a very valuable effort. Um, I have two last questions for you. Imagine I have organized a session for you at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos and you can do with it whatever you want. What would be the topic and who would you invite? Ooh, <laughs> that's a difficult question. Um, I think that I would probably organize a session on why are we not moving forward? <laughs> why is it taking so long? Um, and who would you invite who could help you to find out why we are not moving forward? <laughs> would I be too biased to say that I would invite many young scientists to be on the table? No, I think that's discussion. a really good answer. <laughs> Yeah, no. Well, I, I, I'm joking that I would be inviting uh, only young scientists, but I think it's very important indeed to bring the views of the young scientists and the next generation in, into the table. And by the end of your career, what do you wish you will have impacted and want to be remembered for as an actor in the global food system? Um, I think what drives me the most is uh, not just fundamentally by the global food system itself but the me as a human being on uh, on achieving the reduction of inequalities which is also pretty much prompted by natural hazards and food insecurity in many countries so if we can uh, help the poorest to cope with um, with uh, with what they experience now and in future if they are able to meet their needs and uh, in a much, much more. So if we could help in future the, the poorest to meet their, their needs in a much more human way, on, on a much more fair and justice way, without taking decisions that really, that's really unsustained their livelihoods, I think it's, it's, I, I would be already happy to, to know that uh, I've done my best and uh, Yeah, so uh, if, if in future day we can uh, really achieve the reduction of these inequalities, well, via the diverse ways that they exist, but uh, if we can see a world where with much less inequalities, I think it's, it's, it's already a great achievement. Thank you so much for coming to my podcast, Gabi, and I hope you have a good rest of the day and enjoy the rest of the AGU conference. Thank you for having me.